Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 45. My name is DK, the guy behind Creative Welly, and a big shout to my partner in crime. That would be John O'Tucker over at Empire Films. He produces this video podcast. Check it out at creativewelly.com. It looks beautiful. And you're listening to the audio version, but that's fine. You're very welcome here. Also, a big shout to David Hamilton over at Flash Dog Studio, who hosts us as well. In this episode, we speak to two amazing, bold humans who, again, having courageous conversations with them. That's Michelle Farrell and Dave Greenberg. We get into knowledge management and disaster and rescue, recovery, and lots of other things. It's just a wild and kind of awesome conversation, which I'm sure you will enjoy. So without further ado, let's get into this. How would you describe what you do to someone who doesn't know what you do in the realm you do it in? Oh, wow. That is a great question. And actually, my partner, I think he just has, <laughs> he has this idea of what I do, just as I do with him as well. You know, yeah. he, I'm like, oh, OK, I assume this is what you do. But um, <laughs> I, I at the moment, my real passion is around creating communities um, organizationally. So looking at how can we better connect people? Um, I've, I've been working in the learning and development space. So it, it's been sort of a key part of, of like our, our strategy in, in terms of like how do people learn you learn from people right yeah. so that's yeah probably the best way to describe what I'm doing at the moment is that's a good summation but I gotta ask how do you describe what your husband does he buys stuff yeah he's, that's uh, cool yeah. that's all we need to know <laughs> he works in procurement legal stuff how about you Dave how do you describe I take my lessons from 25 years on the rescue helicopter and from two years working at the national level of COVID response. And I use it to teach people how to respond to incidents, how to be prepared for incidents. So my three words are prepare, respond, recover. Mm. And everything I do is within that circle of things. And how much does community play a part in what you do? Because... A lot. Um, One of my greatest sources of information and inspiration is a LinkedIn community full of disaster management people. And uh, so that's just one of the communities. But um, yeah, and and community, my really close friends, um, I'm from the States and no family here. Mm -hmm. But I've got a lot of family that are just, you know, really close now. And um, so community is important, and it's just one of the things I talk about in my training is what is a community? Is it the people you live in or the people in Tiaro or the people in Wellington? And on it goes. Mm, definitely. Anything around community for you in terms of how would you describe what a community is? Yeah, um, so we do we do, do that. Um, so the communities I'm looking at are mostly organizational. So we're sort of looking at things like communities of practice, communities of interest, communities of learning. And obviously that goes a bit farther, like the community you're describing around the, the disaster responsiveness. That would be probably a community of, of practice or interest, I'd say. Sounds yeah, like, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. Around a topic and, yeah, yeah. shared interest. Mm. But both of you got a, a deep history in the realm that you operate in, because obviously the you know LinkedIn and looking at what you you've been up to, um, kind of is there a natural fit how you found what you're doing now, to where you started in your professional career? Because some people have a very wavy line, right? But how do you uh, describe where you've ended up? Is it was like oh yeah, looking back, it's like cool. 
uh, my, my line is so confused. Uh, yeah. the, I wanted to be a fireman. My parents wanted me to be successful right. and, and they didn't think being a fireman was successful. So I ended up in IT, but as a volunteer fireman. And then I end up in New Zealand as a um, IT person. And then I end up on the rescue helicopter. And, and then all that finishes up. And the next thing you know, I've got stories to tell. I'm a good storyteller, I think, and, and good lessons. And I just said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to speak. Mm. And that's, it is the most crooked line ever, but I love it. But fascinating, you wanted to be a fireman. Yeah, um, I've got a picture of me at eight years old. Um, yeah, just full fireman's outfit. The, the fireman's turnout coat goes past my feet. And yeah, I knew I wanted to do that. And, yeah. and then I saved my first life. Um, I was doing CPR on a stranger in Manhattan, um, 13, a few days before my 14th birthday. And, you know, you save a life at that age. And it was like, this is what I want to do. What was the context around that? I you was can't just go out and save a life. Like. No, no. Um, I was walking down the street in Manhattan. I yeah. had a summer job. A guy collapses in front of me. And I got really excited because I knew what to do. And I went over and I checked his pulse. And holy cow, he didn't have one. And wow. But I had been taught in CPR. Yeah. And I started doing CPR. And then another woman, a stranger, came up. And the two of us did CPR until the ambulance showed up. And the paramedics, um, back then they weren't even paramedics. This was in the early 70s. And um, they defibrillated him. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what happened to him. Like he was alive when he got in the ambulance. Right. He could have died two hours later. He could still be alive today. Wow. Don't know. But it was, for me, a real key point in my life of this is what I want to do. That must be massive in terms of a young brain. Maybe you've got a very different young brain, but something like that could be quite traumatic or enlightening or enriching. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I saw a lot of stuff. Um, the first car accident I went to, I was a junior fireman in my right. volunteer fire department and um, going to lunch with one of the firemen. And we went to a horrific car accident. It was a near decapitation. And, um, and so we do what we had to do. And, and then he's like, come on, we're going to lunch. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> Don't feel like eating. Yeah, of course. And he's like, now's your moment. Either eat and keep it down or pick something else to do. And um, pizza, I, I still remember the pizza. It looked like brains. And, but yeah, I kept that one down and I've never missed a meal since, as you can tell. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Intense, yeah, yeah I, I had a very different teenage years to a lot of my friends yeah and i look at 13 year olds today and i'm like how did i do that yeah but um yeah but i did and it's turned out okay well you mentioned manhattan you're obviously from the big apple and the big apple queens yeah. queens boy yeah which is uh spider-man's territory yes. yeah <laughs> as two marvel geeks oh, okay. recognize yeah. thank you <laughs> yeah like okay, um, how was that? Uh, was that kind of uh, an interesting upbringing, being in the seventies as well, sixties, uh, seventies, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I've got a lot of fond memories of New York, but my yeah. fondest memory, I hate to say, is leaving. Right. <laughs> I, okay. I, I just didn't love it, and um, right. okay. you, you either love it or you hate it. Mm -hmm. My two sisters are within 
15 miles or maybe 20 miles of where we grew up. Right. All their kids and now grandkids are within that same 20 mile circle. Wow. And then there's me. <laughs> the black sheep. The black, definitely the black On sheep. On the other side of the planet. planet. Yeah. And my mom was like, you've gone as far as you can go. Mm. And I'm like, no, that would be Perth. <laughs> I measured it. I'm stealing that because my mom says the same thing. Because you've moved right? any farther away? So yeah, like, yes, Perth. Yeah, yeah. Where, where are you from in Canada? Vancouver. Oh, so yeah, you'd have to go to Singapore, I think. Oh, there we go. Amazing. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. So you're oh, well under half. Yes. So interesting, you both, all of us, sorry, born, born and brought up in different places. What was your formative years like in Vancouver? Oh, um, I actually grew up outside of Vancouver, so it was a relatively small town, a tourist town. We sort of lived for two months, which was the summer, and then the rest of the year you just sort of survived. So, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving to the city was amazing, really good move, mm. and yeah, I didn't intend to stay so long. I just sort of ended up here and... That was it, yeah. Ended up here. No one ends up in Wellington. <laughs> we were talking about this the last session we had. We were talking about that poem over on Civic Square uh, to the boat shed. There's that bridge and there's the poem. You know, this poem's all yeah, over the yeah. And that poem talks about you don't end up in Wellington. You have to attempt to be here. <laughs> Historically, that would have been very, very true, right? Yeah. Get to Wellington is so hard work. So when you say you didn't, you know, just ended up, now what was the story about ending up here? Like, Oh, well, I was living in Sydney and I absolutely loved it. It was probably the best, best year of my life. And it came, the visa came to an end and I thought, well, I'm not quite ready to go home yet. So oh, okay. I'll, I'll, you know, I was sort of lining up the next gig, which was going to be Dubai. I thought, oh, I'll stop over, stop over in New Zealand for a little while. I can get a visa here. Sure. No problem. Year in Auckland. Hated it. Everyone said it's exactly like Sydney. Lies. Absolutely lies. <laughs> Moved to Wellington and, and beautiful city and was planning my, my next jump. And then I met my partner and that was sort of it. So, so when yeah. was that? Oh, gosh, about 15 years ago, 16 right. years ago. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. a baby. <laughs> Definitely. Well, well how long have you been here? Yeah. 33 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I came in 1990 for a one-year computer contract, and I never left. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that brings up the question of what do we call home now? I know we've had this discussion previously. Like, where would you call home? 100% Wellington's home, like, cool. you know, um, but when, I, when I'm going back to see my family, I talk about going home to see the family. Yeah. So not New York, mm -hmm. like if they all moved to California, I'd be much happier. It'd be a shorter trip. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that part of home is where the family is. Mm. But as far as a physical place, you know, I, Wellington is it. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. Same for you? No? That's a weird question because yeah, one, one of the trips home before pre-COVID, I, I went over to the States for a day. So, you know, when you're going over, they ask you where home is. And I was actually deeply conflicted. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. and, and I could see that they were ready to pull me over and, and like <laughs> just, you know, strip the strip the car down. But I was like, oh, no, no, Wellington, Wellington's home. But yeah, it is. It is kind of a weird thing. I think it's contextual as well. When I'm home, that's home. When I'm here, that's home. So, yeah. Yeah, I know how you feel about that. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you find yourself saying to people in Vancouver, okay, I, I go home tomorrow? Yeah. It, it's not quite as natural, though. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I, I guess when you're here for 30 years, it will be a bit easier. Because <laughs> uh, for me, I, I'm really clear I'm going home. And um, I, I was just spent a month in the States. And um, yeah, mom died. And I was in Florida, was with the family up in New York. But I was really clear always that 
you know, I'm going home next Thursday. And, you know, and I couldn't wait because it, my friends are here and all my, you know, my real support network outside of family are here. Mm. And that's a lot of what makes home home. Totally. Yeah, yeah it's the humans rather yeah. than the place, right? Yeah. But, but, but if I had to pick a place, I'm pretty sure that I'll be here forever. But okay. who knows? <laughs> it's a long life. And maybe. it's a strange world, right? Because yeah. you never know what's around the corner. But that idea of home now is people who have transitioned their lives in other places and taken who they are, moved it, and come with as well ideas of what that means to be Canadian, to be mm. from a New Yorker. You what know, about you? Where's home? What do you say? I don't know. Okay. I'm similar to what one of you were saying, sorry, about like when I'm going somewhere, I still call it home, go yeah. back home to Wales. But I'm from there. Yeah. I'm not of there. Yeah. Is, is that, if that makes sense? Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I've been a cup that's been filled up with other experiences now, so I can't just say I'm a Welsh thing yeah. anymore. Not to say that I'm not Welsh. I'll always have that already or foundation little filled up. Yeah. But it does feel like I'm something more now than just oh, where I was from. Yeah. And I'll always have the silly accent and turn it up and down now and again. You join the club. Scare yeah. people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Although I'm sure you get, oh, what part of America are you from? Oh, all the time. Yep. You, you, see, you see, but people I find don't want to insult Canadians. So they'll say to me, North American? Like, yeah. they'll be gentle because they'd rather <laughs> call me Canadian, which Americans don't care, as opposed to offending a Canadian. That bugs me so much. I'm like, I can't even tell where people are from from an accent usually, like, because the accents are so varied. I don't know why Canadians get offended. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, maybe yeah. it is. But then again, being... Canadians are very different than Americans as a cultural kind of idea. Yeah. Maybe that's more what they get offended by. Yeah. But I'm surprised you get that because you're so New Yorker in my uh, head. I am definitely more New Yorker at the moment. Like, give me a couple right. of more months and it will, it oh, will go off just a time, little bit. Right. But yeah, a month around my family, I come back sounding, you know, pizza and water and all and those good things. here? Yeah, yeah. Sorry but, um, you know, What accent was that? No, uh, yeah. You know, I can't do an American accent either, so it's okay. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. So, yeah, it, Wellington's a good place to lay the hat, is it, and you're saying it's your final place. Would it be the same for you? Oh, I don't know. Or there other places that you're itching to oh. try, at least? Yeah, or? fully. Yeah, I quite a right. bit of traveling before I sort of ended up into yep. it here, so yeah we'll see what happens but mm. yeah we've got the life here and the friends and the yeah yeah where's your partner from oh uh, he's from here so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that'll do it yeah. a local boy yeah. <laughs> yeah quite right and in terms of then going back a little bit professionally like you talked about community and all, and kind of gathering and and you know shaping and fostering community you've done that in a couple of places at the moment you're doing it for the new zealand transport agency which is Waka. Waka Katahi. Thank you for helping me with that. Um, how do you define what you're doing there specifically? Specifically at Waka Katahi? Mm. Ooh. Um, so I'm working at the moment, I just got a comment onto a project which is around um, Vision Zero. So that's the idea that zero road deaths, we want zero road deaths by 2030. Um, oh, okay. we, yeah, so it's sort of, it's sort of different to the, the Centre for Learning where I was working before. 
um, but it's still the community aspect is so important you know how do we how do we connect with more so like the community outside of Wakakutahi as well as the community inside because it takes a lot of people to sort of get to the point where we want to be so we're looking at how we sort of form communities wider than just Wakakutahi with with communities and also with other organizations so, so that project is what a, a national project or is it a, um, yeah. yeah a legislative thing or policy driven project uh, I want to say policy driven but okay. it's, it's based on the it's based on um, an international sort of way uh, I want to say Sweden yes Sweden uh, so Sweden has done this they've looked at vision zero for, for themselves so we sort of brought that over to New Zealand and oh. we're trying to get there that's fascinating did, did we end up, I know at 6 p.m. last night, there were no road deaths. Did the holiday weekend? They had one sneak in, it looked like, yeah. No. I was like, no. Yeah, because it's such a, yeah. well, it, it's horrible that we only, the media especially, look at the weekends. Yeah. You know, like 12 people will die during the week, and then they'll report four people on the, um, but the, the, the fact that the numbers just flow so easy, um, it, it's, Amazing, but yeah, when I was on the helicopter, we did a lot of work with um, land transport as it was back then. Um, some TV commercials, and I, I remember fronting some things for them, just trying to get, you know, it was this horrific car accident and, you know, and, and the impact of that. And um, some interesting ads out of them over the ghost chips has to be oh, the best. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. And we've been held up as quite challenging, haven't we, um, globally, as someone who puts out quite hard-hitting yeah. ads. You know, some people are like, oh, that's too far. I'm like, mm. well, But it stuck with you and you remembered it. And yeah. 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 Are we particularly bad in New Zealand when um, you compare to Sweden and other places in the OECD index? How do we do when it comes to deaths on the road do you know I do not know but okay I, yeah. sorry <laughs> but just thinking out loud you know there's obviously an initiative so they're trying to get it down yeah although yeah. zero is massive yeah, yeah. Uh, I think New Zealand sometimes takes you know big bites out of things and I guess you have to have the vision and the fact that we're five million people in two islands mm. helps but you know they're, they're trying to get to eliminate smoking and the road deaths, right. and it's admirable, but sometimes um, look at it, having worked at Ministry of Health for a couple of years mm -hmm. and, um, and talking to the policy people and some of the stuff they're just trying to do, it's, it's really admirable. And then you're like, really? You know, like what? a however or a but come in. Yeah. Well, I guess if we shoot for zero, yeah. then you might fail getting to zero, but if you get to 100, it's a lot better than 412 or whatever the number happens to be. So why shoot for 100 when you could shoot for zero? Yeah, mm. um, yeah it's interesting. Mm. Interesting you bring up that, that smoking, because yeah, I saw that, and I, I haven't seen a lot on it, but that they've cut now, you cannot buy cigarettes. It's illegal to smoke if you're past a certain year, born past a certain year. Uh, yeah, something like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a smoker, never yes. have been, but um, there is something now about passive smoking in cars and there's something about, yeah, something about the age, but, but my God, the taxes, I, I was just up in the Coromandel a couple of weekends ago and my mate asked me to pick him up a pack of cigarettes uh, and normally I wouldn't, I'm just, you know, but I'm like, I'm, 
not going to be the fun police. It was 45 bucks for a pack of cigarettes. Wow. Yeah, I, I was staggered. Uh, by the way, Mike, you owe me 45 bucks. <laughs> just, just say. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, it was staggering. But when you look at the number of smokers, the numbers are coming down, but vaping and, you know, is that better? And, yeah. you know, in 40 years, are we going to hear that vaping's as bad as smoking? Who knows? Probably. Yeah. If you yeah. put in anything in your lungs, are not supposed to be there. Thinking is probably not good. Yeah, but when cell phones came out, I remember, you know, we were all going to have brain tumors we by were. now. And I don't think I've got one. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, who knows? And that's one of the things about life. So many amazing inventions come out. And then 40 years later, you go, whoops. Yeah, yeah. is that. Yeah. Well, talking about inventions and technology, uh, the helicopter was a good invention, yeah. right? See how they segue there? That was beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah. Michelangelo, I think, did it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Tell us about your time on the helicopter, dude. It was yeah. like some no, magic yeah, Best years of my life. Um, yeah. uh, I, I wanted to be a fireman when I was eight, yeah. got to New Zealand, tried to become a volunteer with Wellington Free. Um, ambulance and back then you couldn't transfer your qualifications across oh, okay and so you know it's like I went and visited the helicopter and I became what's known as a skid biter um, what we call skid biters the people who hang around the helicopter trying to bite the skids and <laughs> but um, I, I was persistent and back then in 91 still doing volunteers and I was lucky enough to become a volunteer in March 91 and yeah, became a 25-year career, so. So doing what exactly for those who think, well, well uh, on a helicopter, rescue helicopter, what? So, so my helicopter role was always one of the rescue crewmen. So um, the winch, it's not a rope, people, on the side of the helicopter. It's a steel cable, but the winch, um, either operating the winch or from my first uh, 12 or 15 years, I was the one going down into the sea or into the bush for rescues a lot of the right. time. Um, we were a second ambulance officer, so in Wellington, we have a Wellington Free Ambulance Paramedic. I still talk about it as we, they. Um, <laughs> they. They have a Wellington Free Ambulance Paramedic on board, and then the crew person is the second ambulance officer. Okay. Um, but yeah, in, in the 25 years, I saw a lot of really good stuff and a lot of bad stuff, and um, probably one of the more memorable missions um, was Anzac Day crash in 2010, the Air Force helicopter that crashed up near Pukarua Bay. Mm. And um, yeah, that was a really hard day. What was that? I, I weren't here then, so, so 2011 uh, three, when I arrived, so. so the Anzac Day um, flyover of parades yeah. and three Iroquois were on their way from Ohakia to Wellington up near Palmerston North Down. Um, the weather wasn't great and near Pukaru Bay, they decided to call it off and the three helicopters um, shot off in different directions. And unfortunately, one of them hit the hill. And um, yeah, we ended up doing a search along with one of the other Air Force helicopters. And um, Harry, my pilot and I found the wreckage and then we got an ambulance officer and um, yeah, amazingly, there was one survivor wow. um, who, living in Australia, but a good friend now. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, so that's probably amongst the most memorable. Mm. But, um, but I ended up going to Sydney on a yacht after we rescued someone off the yacht 
on the other side of the Chatham Islands. I was drunk every, no good story starts with salad. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was in the bar, they, this was the BT challenge as it was back then, okay. um, 10 or 12 yachts going the wrong way around the world against prevailing tides okay. and winds. And Wellington was a stopover. They had thank you drinks for everyone involved in the, in the rescue. And they're like, a couple of the guys are like, you should come with us to Sydney. And I was half cut, and I'm like, sure. <laughs> I had never left Wellington Harbor yeah, on, a, on a yacht. Um, I did a yacht course to meet women, and that didn't work out very well. And, um, and next thing I know, f about four weeks later, I was on the yacht for a week between here and Sydney. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, just 4,000 missions. There are a few stories in there, but um, mm. it was the best job in the world. I'll always be grateful for yeah. having been a part of it for so long. 4,000 missions. That's intense. A lot, of, uh, a lot of intersection skill sets right there. If you kind of look at what it takes to just get onto a helicopter, first of all, mm. but then, as you say, second ambulance, so there's lots of, I would imagine, medical training would have gone into that. Yeah. Kind of, um, and triage kind of considerations about lots of things and then tactics. and Yeah, search and rescue tactics and we, a lot of the time we're up front with the pilot and in my last six or seven years we were always up front at night because we had the night vision goggles like you see in the movies you know everything turns green yeah yeah so we we were using those um yeah it, it was really varied and what i loved was there was no predictable day mm -hmm. you could sit around doing nothing or you could go to the Chatham Islands. Um, and, and yeah, and over the 25 years, I um, ended up being operations manager for about uh, 12 years, and I was the media spokesman. So I, it, yeah, it was more than just the helicopter. Yeah, Spends a bit of time on the fixed wing, the airplanes that Life Flight runs. So um, okay. yeah, so it was good. It's an amazing experience, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, but like you say, a lot of stories that probably Rattle around your brain and, and experiences, and how do you manage though the the harder stuff? Not I want details about the harder stuff because yeah. I'm gruesome. I, I'm not gruesome. I mean, I get yeah. a bit like, but I mean, I'm sure there are times when you go, "This is just really hurting me yeah. being involved in this," right? Or do you not? Yeah, very little. Like I, okay. I, I, I describe it that I was really good at compartments in the back of my head. Oop that goes in that compartment and just lock them away and I was fine. Okay. Uh, then I wrote a book and yeah. the editor kept on saying, how did that make you feel? How did that make you feel? And that made me go back and look at things okay. and which was an interesting experience. But, but uh, the thing like um, I had a dog for many years, two dogs, then I had um, goddaughters and my friends and um, I describe in the book that the number of times my friends thought I was heading over there for to bum a meal, and it was just really to be with people yeah, and um, that connection. And yeah, I don't think they ever really get how much that meant to me. And, and we always had the chance for professional, um, if we want to talk to a professional psychologist or debrief, and we would always debrief around the table. Uh, mm. You know, everyone okay? Or, and it wasn't always the jobs where you thought it would be the one that triggers you. Right. Sometimes it's just something random. Yeah, of so, course. Um, but yeah, I, I describe it 
When I started in 91, it was kind of like um, grow a set of balls or, you know, like just get on with it. And then it became mandatory briefings, like debriefs, where you had to go see a psychologist. And then luckily it came back to the middle where it should be, in my opinion, right. that help is there if you need it. Um, but not everyone needs it. So I, I was only sent twice to um, mandatory debriefs. Okay. And that was um, one was after a helicopter crash that I wasn't on, but our helicopter crashed. And then the other one was um, yeah, a pretty tragic one where a young man committed suicide um, after a car accident. And we had been chatting, you know, oh God, I hope he's got some support because it's gonna be a rough night for him. And the oh, next shit. day he was in a tree and, and, and a lot of us took that really to heart. Of course, yeah. And um, there was nothing we could do and you know we were there to try to help save someone else in the car yeah. and who unfortunately didn't make it but um yeah that, that's one um i'll always kind of remember it was valentine's day and right. you know so all those things intersecting right there right? yeah which um, and, mm. yeah i mean but and amazingly good stories some miraculous rescues getting right. people who should have been long dead and saving them and yeah so the whole yeah. gauntlet of emotion through the job. It's one of those things I, I've had friends who've been paramedics and things like that. It's just, I know there's some things in life which you're definitely not built for. Mm. And you go, yeah, that's not me. I couldn't do that. Um, that kind of just, but that's what you teach now, right? And yeah. it's, it's fascinating that we all have our own little specialisms. Yeah. And last one, I'm sorry. Oh, no. Kind of a, uh, the, um, I, I know two jobs I couldn't do, um, and one I just got reconfirmed, sitting with my mom for a month while she was dying, and the hospice people, yeah. like, they're just miracle workers, and, and they're saints, and um, just amazing that they, their whole life is around people who are dying and trying to make them as comfortable emotionally and physically as possible, and couldn't do it. I was glad to be there for mom, but... You know, I'm hoping never have to do that again. And then the other one is working with kids with cancer and um, even the neonatal unit. I have some good friends who are neonatal nurses and yeah, that just tugs at my heart. Um, so give me the trauma, the blood and guts, I'm good. All the other stuff, you know, the emotional stuff, you see, just lock it away. Fair enough. We mm. do what we got to do, but we're shaped by those experiences, but we're also people who can uh, either do something or don't, I don't think. Like, I, Definitely think we're fluid enough to learn yeah. certain competencies, but at some point you go, I just can't. Yeah. yeah. I can't do that. It's not in me. No, you know. So tofu's there for me. Eating tofu. Oh. You can't go there. Don't go to tofu. <laughs> I, I try Good to, to know your dietary <laughs> limits. Yeah, yeah. Nice no, to no, have no, one no. of those. As I well. don't have a lot of hard limits, but tofu's <laughs> one of them. Yeah. I don't know. Tofu can be all right in certain senses. So you but, say. Uh, yeah, just me. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears and talk back about what you do in terms of your knowledge work, because that's how we met back yeah. in the day at Kiwi Bank. I yeah. think I was our ages kind of first, kind of, it feels yeah. like ages ago, it feels like a different world where, forgive me for telling your story, but you were a knowledge manager back then, yeah. right? And again, you've done a few of those types of roles, which I always find fascinating, like managing knowledge. I know. Like it sounds a little bit like esoteric, bit like floaty, bit like, but 
Lassoing the knowledge, bringing it in. Oh, yes. But in a sense, that's still what you do in NZTA, even though you guys are gone. But what does that mean, even though it's like, I know you described the community, but knowledge management, is that different again? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, so knowledge management typically sits alongside information management and, and you've got an IT background, so you probably have heard more about information management than knowledge management, I guess. 100%. Yeah, yeah. and quite often organizations, they do knowledge management, it's, it's been described as information management on steroids. but. When it's right. done really well as part of like a holistic approach, it can be so powerful. So it's, it's less about the, here's an internet and here's some metadata and here's some documents into like how do humans like work with the knowledge that they have? How do they share the knowledge that they have? And this is where it sort of segues really nicely into communities. You know, we all have stuff that we just know. Mm. And how do we share that stuff with people in a way that is going to be repeatable and, you know, help organizations and help connect people. So that's the piece that I really love. And I was incredibly fortunate at Kiwi Bank to have had a leader that was just a visionary, you know, when, when it came to this stuff. And she just said, try stuff, see what mm. happens. And, and we did. We tried some really amazing stuff. We were really focused on connecting people that wouldn't ordinarily talk with each other. So we did a, a month of November with K-N-O-W-V-M-B-E-R where, <laughs> you know, we, we had stuff happening every week. And we had somebody talking about napping at work and the value and the benefits of that. And, you know, it's something they've done at Google. So we had everybody come in and they had a 20-minute nap. And it was incredible because you had people that were, I probably shouldn't say these things, but yeah, you had people that wouldn't have normally met though, that were that were in this room and now they've got this shared experience. Um, yeah. We had a lunch hour where we brought in kittens from Kitten Inn and people could get their photo taken and they could have it uploaded as, as their profile photo. So we got more people with profile photos on, on the staff directory. But we also, again, had people connecting that would normally have not have. And I mm. was in meetings afterwards where people would be like, you know, a, a year later, be like, oh, you were in that kitten day. And I mean, I never would have spoken to these people otherwise. So it was wow. it was looking at really different ways of connecting people as well as, as some of the, the more you know formal formal aspects like mm. knowledge bases and then that stuff, the informats and the stuff that you're used mm. to hearing as part of knowledge management. So I think that's what really made me so interested in, in communities is is that like if I know you, I trust you and I learn from right. you. So, mm. yeah. Does that fit in HR, what you were doing? Or? Uh, at Kiwi Bank, no. At Wakakatahi, yes. Yeah. Learn, the learning uh, team, yeah. Because one of the things fascinating about the that COVID brought on the whole work from home is I thought it was great. I mean, I had to go to work every day, but, you know, that people could work from home. And then I started reading all this stuff about, well, how do we train the next generation if everyone's sitting at home? you don't get to see anyone doing anything. So how do you train the next generation? I, and I think that's a real fascinating problem that um, I don't know how to get over it, but other than having people in the same space, but are you dealing with that at the moment? A little bit, yeah. And I mean, everything's changing as well with the technology, right? Like, you know, I think the best thing that ever happened for Microsoft was COVID. Like, everybody had to use Teams. Everybody right. had to get used to working in that way. So yeah. I think I think the way we work is changing quite a bit. And there's that piece around The other thing I'm super interested in is how technology and people work together. So yeah. I think a lot of organizations have this really great technology suite, and they don't always equip people to use it really well and that's the first you know sort of going to back to what you're talking about I think that's one of the first battles that we have is how do we how do we train people on the tools so that they're using them consistently and using them well and learning from each other in, in that way because I think there's a lot of ways on teams that you can you can help people learn what you do but you have to sort of know how to how to use the tools in the first place 
if that makes sense and answers the question. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating question, especially when you come to um, things where you're not on the computer. Like there are industries that can't work from home, rescue helicopters, paramedics. Yeah, 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 yeah. but um, but so many others. Or ChatGBT, yeah. not to bring, but you talk about tangents. I mean, how many people is that AI going to replace in the workplace over the next two, three, five years? Well, we were always heading in that direction. I'm sure when you mentioned intranet as well, a place where there was a repository of the organizational knowledge of systems and processes, that's what intranet's usually thing. And wouldn't it be ace if you could just go to it and ask it a question and it spit back what we should be doing there. Mm. And that's why there's always directories and, and workflows and, and, and that's what organizations have been constantly trying to do is the turnkey approach, isn't it? Trying to systemize as much as possible. To a degree, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I'm just saying, as a knowledge management yeah, thing, I agree with it 100%. But the fun bit mm. is when you sprinkle in, well, what are the nuances of the human condition in there, and the softer skills that you need to build what you were talking about trust yeah. and experience together, so that we're walking together with this organization rather than just sitting behind a, uh, an intranet full of words and things spit in what I should be doing and who to contact. It's like, well, I'm contacting someone I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So it's a balance, I think, and the chat GDP has just shown us one angle yeah. of repository knowledge. Like, what's your take as a knowledge manager on AI or LLMs and all these other LLMs and all the other kind of suck up as much data, run the algorithm and spit it back at you? I love it. I think I really yeah. it's terrible. I shouldn't love it as much as I do because I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to like be the death of us all. But it's it's pretty amazing. And I mean, just the creativity and things like that. It's it's really interesting. And to see the different, you know, you sort of got three three people that are leaders in the space. You've got Google with Bard. You've got. Uh, ChatGPT, and then you've got Microsoft, who's obviously working with ChatGPT, but they're all slightly different. Like you can ask the same question and get slightly different answers depending on, on which program you've asked for a lot of really nuanced reasons. I, I think it's it's really interesting, and the creativity that it can it can spew out now is is terrifying. And images, and you know, we talked previously about uh, they've now got this ability that you can you can edit people's videos so if if i did a video with a ceo who's talking about their job and oh actually there's this one paragraph in there we were one one sentence in there we want to change they can do that so digitally you can you can change that and it sounds exactly exactly and it sounds exactly like it was part of the original conversation and that's that's terrifying but also kind of cool so mm. yeah uh I was at a conference in Melbourne for speakers a few weekends ago, and apparently um, there's a program out there now. If I go and do, it's like 35 minutes of reading a script that covers off all these different words, I could then give it my book and it will produce an audio file of my book being read by me with my lips moving if I wanted to have video too. Terrifying. Yeah. And exciting at the same time. Mm. But how do you trust anything you see anymore? That's going to be yeah. the biggest question. But at least there's opportunity to ask a question now rather mm. than going rampage. Although, I don't know, the, the, the cat's out of the bag. The, mm. the box is open, shall we say. And it's not going to go back. That's the thing. And we're yeah. going to have to consider those questions. Yeah. And then the good ones as well. Because... 
you know, just passed, didn't it? Four point zero just passed the medical exam. Yeah. Uh, mm. For America, um, so making diagnoses already. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and you just think, wow, having the world's knowledge at someone's fingertips, like a medical student who can just go, bang, can be scary because we got great imaginations. We were not watching enough sci-fi films to go. <laughs> no, they're going to give us the, you know, that's how the uh, apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse, yeah, created through the chat GTP, <laughs> and it's the thing. That's her imagination. Or it could be, wow, that person really got helped yeah. in such a rapid amount of time and diagnosed and it was clinical and it was perfect. And the robot did the surgery without its yeah. hands shaking. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, it's terrific. But like this weekend, I was writing an abstract um, for a conference in the States that I'm trying to become a speaker for. And so I'm like, well, let me see if, what it thinks. So I fed it in and said, what are the outcomes and the um, takeaways? Yeah. And it, um, it read them back and I'm like, okay, I hit those. And then it said, and Dave Greenberg might be David Greenberg who worked at LifeLight and it started telling me all, so I've made it to ChatGBT, which is quite there you exciting. Go. You've sucked up your data in a yeah. meta format. But it knew little bits and pieces about me down here in New Zealand. Interestingly, I've in New Zealand, I've always been Dave and it has me as David, oh. but it was smart enough to make the connection and say, this mm. might be this person. That's and pretty cool. That was cool and scary, but. I fed my website into it. I said, check out justadinak.com and give me a review. Not really having much expectation of what that actually means. It was, um, apparently I'm a Scottish by the name of John Johnston. And I talk about marketing and other things. It's got about two thirds of it wrong. Well. And I was fascinated by how it got, like the Scottish thing I'm fascinated by, because maybe you went in and analyzed metadata and Celtic and put that together and got an accent and Welsh isn't trained on AI quite well and Scottish is the best. Maybe. How do you tell the difference? No, Thank you. Sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Some someone people had don't. That. Someone had no, someone, Well, some, a lot of people ask, am I Irish or Scottish before they get to Welsh anyway, because yeah. it doesn't travel well. American, Canadian, yeah. feeling Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it is fascinating how good it can be. Yeah. and nuanced and specific and, and kind of surprise and delight you, right? Versus how terrible it is as well. But it's a learning set. That's why it's a yeah, learning yeah, mm. set of, of information. Plus, it only learns up to 2021. Yeah, at the moment. Uh, at but the that moment. only came out in November. Yeah. yeah. That was so, five months ago. Microsoft, that's the difference, is it, it does real time. So that's if you That's the, the thing Bing, with the Bing with stuff. Bing, yeah. Oh, really? Bing yeah. does real time yeah. stuff. Yeah. Can you excuse me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll try. Oh, my phone's over there, but I'll, I'm going to just take a look. That's quite fascinating. Yeah. What's interesting is a lot of people are obviously, well, just go on LinkedIn and all you see is chat, TDP and AI and stuff like that. It's got, yeah. People have gone crazy with it. Um, and a lot of it is doomsday and stuff about industries being radically disrupted and jobs and livelihoods. And, uh, and it's like, yes, yes, and because a lot of new industries will be born out of this. Mm. And as you know, you can even get a job now as a prompt writer. Uh, there's the new industries starting out to write proper prompt for like mid-journey and, and other things. It's, a, wow. it's, a, it's like Texas again, back in the day, using an American analogy, right? It is the wild frontier happening in a techno technological societal thing. This is a big shift. Yeah. But we're not gonna use the, lose the human touch. 
quite yet. Not yet, but um, I, I always wondered, like my grandfather, he died quite a while ago, but he was born in 1898 or something. And when he died in the 90s, I was like, will any other generation ever see the amount mm. of stuff that my grandfather saw, you know, cars, yeah. trains, planes, ATMs, like he would never get an ATM. Phones, he, mobile phones. He, he never got one of those either. Right. But, you know, my mom, who was 84, she, over COVID, learned to FaceTime because that was the only way to see her kids and grandkids. And, you know, do, yeah. so you can teach people, but, but I didn't think, I thought the only thing we could see that would be as cool as what my grandparents or might be I want to be in New York and you know I'm just transported there mm. um, but then along comes AI and I'm like well that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah but you mentioned COVID earlier on I was and I wanted to go a little bit deeper and, and linger on it if we could because of your history with the COVID recovery team but also in terms of what you think um, because you would have probably where were you when COVID was happening it was uh, TAS and yeah. IR yeah. bit of that yeah. What did you see around the knowledge management community development space when COVID happened? Like how disruptive, but also constructive was it? It was, again, sort of coming back to the tools. I think that was the best thing that ever happened for Microsoft. You know, you sort of had to use these tools to be able right. to connect. So, yeah, we, we progressed so quickly with stuff that I was trying to get in for so long. I was oh, like, right. not, okay. not just there, but, uh, you know, other organizations as well. Yeah. Where it's like, we should do it this way or this way. It's like, oh, no, no in person. So yeah. that was that was quite nice as being able to, you know, not have any other choice but try it. And, and it has to succeed. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. That, was, that was quite good. And now, though? Um, have there been a swing back? Yes and no. I think in some areas there has been a swing back, but I think the benefits are just so so obvious. You know, less travel and, and particularly, you know, where I work now, it's obviously, you know, that's a, a big bonus. So you can connect and we've shown that it can be done really well through mm -hmm. COVID. So why would you why would you go back? And it's really nice as well to work in an organization that's so concerned about uh, work-life balance. So, you know, that flexible working is, is really a great yeah. a great thing and I think most of the places I've worked have really picked that up and, and kept it which is quite nice. Mm -hmm. Hey, I, one of the, the companies I do my incident management, or what government departments I do my incident management training for, really dispersed workforce across the country. Since COVID, we now do it on Teams and I do a six hour course over seven and a half hours with some breaks and they are saving tens of thousands of dollars on travel because, you know, it's not flying me to Auckland to do a course. It's getting everyone into a main center and putting them up overnight and paying them overtime and all the yeah. other things. And and now we we jump on at 8.30 and by 4 o'clock they're on their way. Mm. And why would why would you go backwards on that and there's still stuff i have to do face to face because it's hands-on but um yeah. it, it fundamentally did change the way we look at things i think yeah totally. what is possible but what's the round the corner just to linger a little bit on the community side what's around the corner from a perspective of you said you're very interested in new technologies 
Uh, I just wanted to pick on one thing that, that you yep. said, which, you know, is the, is the, it's so great that we can do these courses, but I think the thing that's really exciting too is we're looking at different ways of doing them as well. So how do we, how do we sort of measure? Because I mean, we've probably all been on that team's call where it's like your attention's drifting and mm-hmm. what the cats are doing. And, you know, how do we, how do we sort of measure and, and make sure that people are engaged? So yeah. I think we're also looking at how we do things slightly differently to make sure that we're a, you know, presenting in a way that's, or, or learning and teaching in a way that's going to, going to, you know, get the most benefit from folks so that's kind of interesting Mm. but sorry new technologies new technologies um well i know there's again i love microsoft apparently but i know there's some some big changes coming with them in the microsoft world they've got some new teams experiences that are coming out which i think will be really good i think one of the challenges with community is finding the right tool so a lot of times you're you're sort of limited in, in organizations to what you've already got so that can be a bit of a challenge if it doesn't quite tick the boxes, and I think community, digital communities, have some really specific needs that aren't necessarily uh, fully covered by by what Microsoft has. So hopefully that's going to sort of pick up. They've already made some good advances in the algorithms with with things like Yammer, so that's promising. But mm. yeah, I think there are probably going to be some changes on the horizon there. And obviously, Chat GPT and all of the AI and stuff that's coming in is is changing things by leaps and bounds. So yeah. Is there some some fundamental stuff though that's going to have to stay with, especially the online community stuff? Because I remember my my kind of baptism into the online world was being part of online communities since two thousand and scanning a photo and trying to upload it, but it's got to be the right thing as part of a photography community online. It's like so hard work just to get a photo from the scanner up online, you know, and try to all that thing. But there was a, a foundation of of I suppose motivations to be part of that community which is topic based you know so you've got to be around something that you're passionate about but it also had many elements by which i could contribute it wasn't just a read only it was a read and write mm-hmm. you know so i could contribute to it and other people could contribute to my contribution so it's validation of effort you know those are the uh, fun seems to me foundational to online communities like that hasn't changed we look at subreddit or any subreddit, it's the same, exactly the same. Like, but is there anything from your perspective you noticed that foundationally has to be exist? Yeah, well, so we're sort of looking at uh, specific needs for a specific community. So value is, is like you, you mentioned, that's so pivotal to having a community that works. Like you need to have value for yourselves and the business needs, needs to see the value in it. So what we've done is we've built out a structure where it's like you, there's measurement around it, like either explicit measurement where you're actually tracking it week to week or that sort of, you know, Im- implied um, value. So you can measure things and you know that that's happening and you can report back on that. It doesn't have to be formally, you know, oh, we've made 85%, you know, people are, are responding within 24 hours. Um, so I think that's that's been quite useful with digital tools, but it's also looking at like what works for what community. So having sort of a bit of a toolkit where you can apply different things to different communities depending on their need. So for example, I'm really excited at the idea of doing like an urban dictionary for for a community. So these these phrases or words or things that you use every day that mean something to your project, for whatever reason, and you define that. So it, it does become part of the part of the structure of how you flow. So it's it's a little bit different to a glossary because it's more it's more mm-hmm. fun and informal. But you know that's a tool that would work for a specific kind of community. So it's, it's looking yeah. at what is going to make this community super valuable for the members and not, not keep them coming back. Mm, mm-hmm. Makes sense. Never thought about the Urban Dictionary. Seems like a cool idea, huh? Yeah. To find the right community. Yeah, it's great. That's fun. So let's talk about COVID in, through your lens. 
because I was COVID uh, through the shelves, but you had a different experience. I, I did. Um, so I had my business. It was going great, starting to do a lot of um, flying. And, you know, I was doing some firefighting in Australia. This China thing comes along. Um, luckily, I snuck in a last trip to see my mom on New Year's Eve. Um, 2019, I arrived yeah. and um, spent a few days with her. But anyway, I get back and um, I got a phone call from a mate, someone I knew um, through one government agency, saying he was the now the emergency the director of emergency management at Ministry of Health. Um, could I come give him a hand? And I thought, yeah, for a few weeks until this blows over. And, um, and I ended up being on the COVID um, response team, uh, which was quite interesting. So we, we had a team of really good team of people all across the COVID directorate, but the people who did the contact tracing and created that. And oh, okay. um, we work with the medical um, the clinicians, the doctors, and the scientists. But we, the COVID response team, kind of coordinated it all. And I found myself um, going to, on Zoom, sitting in on COVID cabinet meetings with the prime minister and her cabinet. And I did a couple of briefings to them. One, when I was on someone else's computer, I'll always regret this. Uh -oh. My good briefing, <laughs> she kept on saying, oh, Liam, thank you. And then like oh. 10 days later, I had the worst briefing ever. It was, I was really embarrassed by it. And um, then she knew my name, <laughs> um, but that's just life. And, um, but yeah, so I was, um, our team, coordinated COVID response. We took the direction from government, from governance, mm -hmm. down through Ashley. And um, it's amazing that you could just say Ashley and anyone who was in New Zealand knows who you, you mean. Yeah. And, and then we would make sure that all the regions and locals knew what the direction. Um, but the, all the work happened at the coal front, the nurses and the mm -hmm. doctors and um, the people sticking, you know, tests up people's noses. They did all the hard work and, and we were Wellington. We sat around and, um, you know, it, it, we did a lot. It, it was really hard. It was shift work. It, it, it was interesting. Um, but one of the most amusing things is um, as the response manager, when we weren't in the office 24-7, we were on call. Someone was on call and I was at brunch one day and my phone came up and it was um, Ashley Bloomfield. So I went off and I took the call and dealt with it. And I came back and my friends were like, was that really Ashley Bloomfield? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, to have this civil servant, he was basically, yeah. and so I said, no, everyone in my phone, it says Ashley, just to impress my friends. <laughs> but, um, but the thing about, and anyone on my team knew that when Ashley called us or we called him, it was never good news. He never called to check in on right. how my weekend was, <laughs> you, you, you know, it yeah. was, and I never called him to see how his weekend was, but um, it would be at the time when we were eliminating, still an elimination, every time there was one new case or a new outbreak, we would hear about it, let him know, he would let um, Minister Hipkins know, would let the Prime Minister know. So working very high up, um, and the amazing thing to me was the difference between 25 years of the incident level, 
working on the helicopter, the cold face, as I described it, getting your hands dirty, mm -hmm. and then being at the national level where everything's more strategic and we're not thinking so much the next 10 minutes or 10 hours, we're thinking tomorrow, next week, next month, and then sitting in on these cabinet meetings where they're thinking next week, next month, a year from now. And, mm -hmm. and just the higher up you go in the chain, the more strategic the thinking had to be. It, it, it really was an awesome learning experience. Um, one I wish none of us went through, but um, yeah, it, it, it was amazing. And, and I think the thing that people just don't know is um, how the question, like when people would go on about, it's amazing how divisive Jacinda is, lover, hater, you know, and, um, and the questions that would get asked in the cabinet meetings, like what politically a government does with them is one thing, but they were always really good questions. Mm. And like they were going for the, um, the, the knowledge, and we never presented them a good and a bad answer. We presented them with two bad options, and now you go ahead and pick the least worst one. Right. And, oh, you know, wow. that was just constant. And um, it was fascinating and exciting and really privileged to have been part of it and to watch that thinking at that level. Mm. And my answer is, like, you know, I don't agree with everything the government did. But I didn't disagree either, and if I vehemently disagreed, I could have left at any time, and I didn't. You know, I think you, any government would have had it. One would have picked economy a bit more over people, yeah. but overall, we're a central, you know, we go down a pretty even line. And the best part was being a civil servant for two years, and just it didn't matter, like I do as I'm told. And, you know, and, and that's how I now justify to people who want me to justify how I could possibly work for the labor government. I'm like, yeah. Didn't matter at the time, it, right? Yeah, it, it's like we were just doing our job and then I'll, and I'm quite proud you look at the excess deaths over, you know, the years and we're, we're negative excess. Omicron changed the whole thing and that's when I left after Omicron because we weren't managing COVID anymore mm. uh, in the same way, but, you know, no other country, or there are a couple, but none of the other in the OECD, OECD, OECD. You know, we were either the best or in the top three as far as excess deaths. You know, um, lockdowns were hard. I, I never experienced them. I had to go to work every day. Um, but I know people who did, and I know the people in Auckland and in Waikato had it even harder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing I would say to all my friends up there during it is, well, I just want you to know that everyone in cabinet talks about that and all. So the, the cabinet meetings were cabinet and it was the CEs of all the government departments who were playing part in COVID. And everyone understood what we were doing and the implications and, and and yeah and the way decisions were made and the disagreements how they were sorted it was um fascinating and yeah and i think overall we did well definitely so interesting too because it's unprecedented right like it's not like there's something you go oh this is what we did last time like yeah yeah i, I agree and and you know you go back to 1918 and mm. 
they wore masks, but that's how I don't want to get into that. Uh, but, but the thing is, like people talk about it, we built the plane while we were flying. And I don't buy that analogy because if we, we didn't have the right resources on the plane, which was the right people and all that, we would never have kept it flying. So I, I think that around government and not just not the leaders, but within government departments, the cleverness of people to get past supply chain issues and to um, the messaging, that United site to get out the messagings, the, the one o'clock stand up, you know, the whole country just waited for that. And for me, it was old news by one o'clock, like I'd get a text saying, oh, there's, you know, so many new cases. I'm like, yeah, you know, cause I knew that hours ago, but, but not that many hours for the haters who think that we held things like we would get the numbers together by 10 AM and they were announced at 1 PM. Like people, exactly. the conspiracy theorists were just amazing. Mm -hmm. And, and then the, the protests, yeah, uh, that was weird. Oh, so uh, weird. I also found it. Upon reflection now, and especially because Jacinda more recently stepped down, um, just thinking about her, I'm not going to say leadership because I, I wasn't there. I you can only guess about that. Mm -hmm. But from the communication perspective, because of what we saw at the 1 p.m. stand-ups, mm -hmm. the front and center, our p.m. doing her thing. And of course, it's not just all her, it's our comms specialist and other things, but she still had to stand up every day and present it in a way that both was digestible, heartfelt, and add action to it. There was very few leaders around the world that you were seeing comparable to what she was doing and how she was holding space for people mm. and concerning that. And I, I think you, people forget how good she was at that specific skill yeah not everybody has she had humility and she had compassion and it mm. was it was there it was evident and, and her and ashley i mean ashley another great communicator good and, point it was yeah, a concert it was yeah, in concert sorry yeah, and, and like there there was um our director of public health caroline who when i first started at the ministry she on she would do the friday stand-ups Mm. And she was rehearsing and nervous in the beginning. By the end of it, they could say to her 10 minutes before, can you go do stand-up? And she go, yeah, got this. And just the growth and, but brilliant people. And like um, one of my bosses, Chris, um, and I would sit with Caroline and we would learn all this scientific stuff. So we became professors. Um, I know more about genome sequencing and all this other stuff and the than you should than I ever <laughs> should and it's starting to it's starting to fade away but mm -hmm. um, it was fascinating and like if you could step back and just look at when we were um, how they could trace that you gave it to um, mm -hmm. DK who gave it to me or no no you gave it to me that gave just because the scientists over it. Um, Oh, I forget the name of the agency. I'm sorry, guys. Um, the ones who would do all of that, um, they were just, the um, yeah, the genome sequencing. And, but amazing, um, amazing people. I, I was always amused by some of the commentators. Um, and I'm thinking about one in particular, but um, like you would get two commentators who would take opposite ends of a, mm. a position and then I told the government to do this, I told the government to do that. 
And then one of them would be right, and they would go off and say, I told the government to do that, you know, 10 days ago, and the other one would just shut up. Mm. <laughs> you, you know, and um, everyone had an opinion. Everyone yeah. did, yeah. A and, um, yeah, and overall... There was new ground for everybody, that was the thing. Yeah. It was a shared global experience that everybody was experiencing at once. Yeah. And no one had really a plan. There was plans, definitely, but no one had, had experienced it. No. Apart from the 1918, as you mentioned, but that was a very different time in a very different place it, it, with a very different thing. Yeah, you know, and, and I know there's a cabinet decision coming out soon about do we take away the quarantine and what, what next? And, you know, I, I, I don't have opinions on that. I just go with it and I know what I would do personally. And that's all, if I, I don't care if the rule is that you don't have to quarantine, but if I'm positive, I'm not going out amongst people. Makes sense, Yeah, because you yeah. like people. But, but a lot of people, you know, traveling around now, um, I was in the lift with someone. I said, oh, you know, someone I know in my apartment block. And they said, I said, oh, um, what, good you're wearing a mask or something. I didn't question it because, yeah, I've got COVID at the moment. I'm like, the hell are you doing in the lift with me? And you're coming here, dude. Yeah, wait yeah, a minute. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, and it's like, okay, people make their own decisions. And, yeah. uh, and they do it in all areas of life, not just COVID. COVID just brought the best and the worst of us, I think. I agree, yeah. What was your take on it from, you know, your professional lens when you were watching this like system of knowledge kind of being shared because yeah there was a lot going on I'm sure you had takes on yeah well, I was super interested in how you know how much learning there was from each other you know as, as a world like how much because it was so unprecedented like I imagine the only sort of way to get knowledge would be to communicate with other countries is that happening a lot did you guys find or I know um, we, our clinicians run the um, on with Australia every day and they, a wider group. So it would go regional and then they'd be on with who? Yeah, it was sharing the information. And, yeah. But, you know, in the beginning, there were no masks because it was everyone thought it was gloves. Cause, and then, no, it's a respiratory. So then we moved to masks. But it was no one being, oh, no, there aren't enough masks, so they're just telling us this. It's like, mm. no, that was the best available science at that point. At that point, yeah. yeah. And and so I think the knowledge was shared not only by meetings and Zooms, but just turn on the nightly news and, yeah. you know, watch another country, another jurisdiction and what they're doing and sometimes just shake your head. Not, not to mention anyone, but, you know, Clorox just didn't work, you, you, you know, and yet there are people who died from drinking Clorox because they were told that was the way to kill COVID. And That's scary. It, it, it is. And, and you know, you, you've got to find, it's like a movie reviewer. Find a reviewer that has the same taste mm. and read their movie reviews because if I read your review and you two like sci-fi, I hate sci-fi, but you'll probably give it a great rating, and I'd go and go, ooh, what a horrible movie. So I need someone who does boys' movies or does, you know, whatever. Pick your experts. Yeah. Mm. I think the amazing thing as well was, you know, this nobody could have seen this thing coming, right? Like, in, in terms of how the world reacted to it, with the Clorox or the I don't want to wear a mask. Or, you know, there's, there's no novels, sci-fi novels about this where people just didn't believe in it or, you know, the 
good point. Bleach. Like nobody saw that as a possible outcome of a plague. It was, it, you know, I thought that was super interesting. And the film that came out with Leonardo DiCaprio about the, the thing crashing to the earth. Uh, oh, where they don't deny, look up. Don't look up. Yeah. Came out after it. Exactly. Based on the idea that people, disinformation yeah. would mm. poo poo credible science. So it influenced the other way. Yeah. But you're right, nothing came out before. No. But, you know, there's um, a book, I think it's called Imaginable, um, and it's a woman in the States, and I don't remember her name, but they did a big study years ago, and they totally predicted that the, um, not the pandemic, but that in, in um, response to something like a pandemic, that it would spread through churches, like what we saw up in Auckland. It's all in there. They did the study of what did people wow. do. So yeah, there are some clever people out there that mm. did foresee some of it. Um, but overall, like Tom Clancy, he wrote the the movie um, where the seven four seven hit into the Capitol, and you know everyone. Yeah. Of course, yeah. One of his. And then the World Trade Center, you know, and that's why governments sometimes bring in those writers to say, hey. What can you imagine? <laughs> what can you imagine? Because mm. you need those imaginations to get you out of that little box of thinking. Well, that's crucial for both your lines of work in terms of resilience and your training. It's like you've got to imagine scenarios, I would imagine, and then hold mm -hmm. up some systems thinking around it about what you're going to do, or X, Y, and Z, you know. And then in terms of what you do as well, you're trying to imagine a better kind of system for communities to, to have uh, deeper connections and what you described, what you were doing with Kiwi Bank and all the cool initiatives with other organizations is kind of that's driven by creativity, surely. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Anyway, what questions haven't we explored? And you might have some, so I'm going to eat a piece of chocolate. I feel like I've been asking all questions. So I'm going well, to throw it I, I've liked that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at answering. <laughs> so, so, like, what next? Like, in the learning space, in the knowledge space, what, what does the next 12 months look like? Like, so as a consultant, what should I be thinking about to go and sell to government departments? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, it, you know, the AI stuff is going to be massive. Like, how do we, how do we manage that? And like we were talking about earlier, you know, how do we, how do we live in harmony and, and keep the jobs, you know, that we've got and working with the AI rather than the AI just sort of taking over everything, which is Skynet so badly, so, so Skynet. Um, I think that's the, that's the space to start thinking in. So how do we augment what is coming in terms of the technology and, and how do we complement that? Mm. that it, it, it's fascinating to even imagine that stuff or try to imagine what. Um, I think I'll stick to my little um, niche in the world. It's, well, disasters, that little niche. Um, the, yeah, it's, and something like mine, you could get all the AI and you could get anything you want. You're still going to need boots on the ground to do the stuff. And, right. and, yeah, so not every industry will be affected by AI. I take no, your I point from right. earlier. Yeah. What about organizations who are building up? those skills in-house, though, but of AI, I'm thinking. I'm reminded of when Facebook and all the Facebook files came out and it was discovered that you can get a job in Facebook as an engagement officer, um, but when you deconstructed, I think, their job ad adverts, um, it was actually asking for people with 
knowledge and skills and PhDs in addiction. And they just rebranded, if you know how to create interfaces that addict you, then that's engagement. Yeah. And you're like, huh. And I'm just thinking, will AI have this kind of trickery of like, oh, we just trained um, a whole data set in this, but it actually means this. Will there be a role reversal? I reckon some of this technology. Yeah, because I think they all start out with a really good purpose, right? Like I, I truly believe Facebook, they, they, I mean, I really want to believe that they started out wanting to connect people, right? It's just they figured out how to monetize it and make it evil. And that was just so attractive. I, I think potentially this AI thing, I mean, you see how quickly Google leapt in with Bard and it's like, mm. I don't feel like they, I haven't seen anything that evidences that they've done a lot of thinking around what they're releasing. Um, and I mean, it is going to affect their bottom line ultimately. Like I've got a, I've got a little add-on for my, for my Chrome, Google Chrome, mm. that when I do a Google search, it, it actually also brings up a chat, uh, a chat GPT result as well. And it's, it's just mind boggling how much more useful that chat GPT response is. Because oh, okay. what you get is with Google, you search for something like, you know, um, what's the normal temperature for a cat? You know, if I was taking their, their temperature, what would be normal for them? So you get like seven sort of sponsored responses and then you get these things from 2018 mm -hmm. and all you, so you'll, you'll have to dig to find the answer you want. Whereas ChatGPT is like, right, Michelle, this is the correct temperature for a cat. You know, it may vary in these situations, but you know, that basically this is what you want to know. So it's there in a couple of paragraphs. Okay, yeah. yeah I'm going home and finding that <laughs> extension, that's for sure. It's amazing, but to take your point about the evil mm. that's going on potentially behind the scenes, you know, how they're not monetizing that yet. So how are they going to monetize that? That's going to mm. be the next thing. So they've already introduced this sort of paid version of ChatGPT, yeah. which is better, faster, stronger. Um, Microsoft has, has got, you know, they've integrated it. It's going to be, I'm, I'm assuming, on a paid model as well. So. Yeah, and mm. what is that going to mean? How do they keep people coming back to want to keep paying for it? And, uh, That's the trick. They yeah. should have open sourced it. and Because they, they definitely, they're not open, and they open AI kind of, mm, straight away there's a question with mm. the language use. Yeah. But coming back to your point about the, the search criteria, I remember back in the day when I used to um, run a company around emerging tech, media snackers, and we used to go and, and build capability and organization with the web and teach people how to blog and podcast before it was sexy. Uh, but I always remembered when we used to teach people on Twitter, you know, Twitter was emerging around 2009. We were showing people how this cool thing was and people were like, well, I don't get it. So it's like the Facebook update, but constricted to a certain amount of characters, like a text, 140. Yeah, yeah cool. It's like, like, and people used to be like, no. So it was just a, show them by jumping on live and just saying, hey, followers, could I'm just training some people here in Leeds. Could you just say hi and where you're from? And people would. He's, hi, I'm from San Francisco. Or, hi, I'm from Beirut or whatever. So it's like random as that. Like, There's people in his accent. But I also used to say, and Twitter is a search engine. It's not just a communication engine. And especially later in the years, like 2011 plus, mm. you know, they had the advanced search and you could click in and do a search. And if you click the little gear to the advanced search, you can search, used to be able to search within certain mile radius. So if you were an organization, you could search for a key phrase or word, say pizza, you mentioned pizza earlier. So say we could search within a 25 mile radius of Wellington, anybody who mentions pizza on Twitter, or five mile, let's just mm -hmm. make it quite simple. 
and they're mentioning, oh, I really like a pizza tonight. And you just get all random and, oh, I love pizza and stuff like that. If you're a business, that kind of data is kind of cool because now you've got a way to connect directly with people who like pizza. It's a fly. Um, and then you could tweet and say, oh, we've got a special on our pizzas at the moment. Now, that's just an obvious way of using data. And my mate at the time used to run, big shout out to Mark Mapstone, um, who used to run the courses with me, he came up with this lovely little aphorism, which was like, look, searching Google is like searching the dead web. Things have long happened and long forgotten in the Lord of the Rings realm and things that shouldn't have been forgotten and all this other stuff. But the metadata is what drives an algorithm we don't know, but it's kind of depth stuff. Twitter is like searching the real live web with humans involved because people are behind it and tweeting about stuff is before Twitter box and mm. stuff like that. So you could see the dichotomy of like having a live platform with live information you could get metadata of based on location or even you could do it by uh, positive or neutral ratings as well search things by wow. um, our group kind of thing and you can get the RSS feed out of it and I would populate out a little text for alert you could do all that stuff when it used to be open mm -hmm. and that's my frustration with the new technologies is you have to start right anything that doesn't start right I got I got that side eye with me going on like I haven't signed up to chat GTVP I've tried the free open source resources that use them so I don't have to give them my data yet because I'm like I'm suspicious yeah. Yeah. you know because you've got all this data and you've pulled it from somewhere and you haven't told us really how it works and now you want my phone number I know it's just my phone number but you'll be building off of my IP and who the cookie settings who I'm linking to and you build up the whole thing and now I'm sure nah I'm good yeah and this is... Uh, I admire you for that because I'm just giving away. <laughs> Same, I'm like, just my way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and I, it's probably smarter. Yeah. But, and like Twitter, you know, this whole thing with Elon. Mm. I would, if they came out and said, we're going to do a green tick for people who pay $8 a month to show you paid money, I probably would have given them my money because yeah. I enjoy Twitter. I get a lot of use sure. of it. Yeah. But it's all this BS around you can't tell who's, you know, so someone could now set up a Dave Greenberg account, pay the eight bucks a month, and they are Dave Greenberg, and they could take my photo. Mm. And if I went to complain to Twitter, they'd go, well, you don't have the blue tick, so you're not the person. Yep. Um, which is why I won't give them my money. I think they Did they kind of read the room wrong. Completely. Well, was it Eli Lilly with the insulin, where where somebody pretended to oh. be the the company that, that oh, was, and discounted and, it. and completely like tanked it? Yeah. But yeah. their share the prices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're right. They should just do the most simplest basis. It's like if you're really that interested in free speech and open access, right? Yeah, ban the really harsh stuff. That's still easy. They had the algorithms. They had all that sorted. But just get people to pay one dollar a month for access and i guarantee you're going to make money kick off the 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 advertisers because no you trust people enough kick off the algorithms trust mm. people to create their own media menu of the people they want to follow and the stuff that they get and opt out of any opt-in sorry of any algorithmic basis stuff mm. it's really simple actually to do good tech mm. well yeah it's really hard to do what all the other people are doing currently online to hide this stuff. It's like so obvious, so easy to do good, good tech well. I don't know why we're not living. I also don't get kindness. why we're not looking at making life better for ourselves, you know, yeah. like with, with AI, like there's the potential that maybe we don't have to work, you know, 
so many days a week. We could actually work reduced hours. We yeah. could look at how society's structured, but it doesn't Distribute feel... wealth. Yes, exactly. Can... But yeah. Yeah, mm. that doesn't seem to be the way we're going. No. Uh, watching Twitter and Elon Musk, it reminds me there's a joke, Lee Iacocca, who used to run Chrysler and, um, okay. and he ran Eastern Airlines for a while, an airline in the States. And one day he said, uh, you want to know how to be a millionaire? You, you start as a billionaire and you buy an airline. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look at how much money yeah. um, Twitter's lost and Elon's yeah. lost yeah. and uh, how much credibility. And you're like, why? why? <laughs> that simple question of why. There's a yeah. bigger play obviously being done here and we're very stupid because yeah. we're not getting it, right? Yeah, but I guess when you're worth that much money, but it would have to hurt losing a billion dollars. I don't care how many billion you have. Um, and the credibility, like yeah. you said, of other people, probably but, peers going, dude. You know, yeah, I'm, but you know I'm sure he still has enough people around him going, dude. And if he doesn't by now, then that's the problem. But, but there's, the world is so split now, unfortunately, you know, and um, one of my best friends growing up in New York, who was a Jewish New Yorker, you know, was a Democrat always, is such a MAGA person, like, and he, he wow. just sits there and watches Fox News. And, and it's fine, because when I visit him, I just sit with him because he's still my mate from 50 go. years ago. Yeah. And I just listen to it all and I'm like, what happened to you? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that the left is better than the right, but you know, the, the, this whole um, MAGA or whatever you want to call it, that people just don't trust each other and they don't believe what the other person said. I, I saw it in COVID with a really, um, a, a good acquaintance, a, a friend who, is part of the national party, not a politician. He, we had a coffee and he told me that the government was lying about COVID. And I'm like, no, no, we're not. I said, ask me anything. I said, in the confines of this coffee shop, yeah, yeah. tell me where you think you're not getting. And then a lot of people, once you call them out for facts, they kind of back off. Mm -hmm. um, but not many people call people out. They just go yeah. too hard or, um, yeah, I Again, wish we were so divided. Yeah. I agree, and that's what social media historically was set up for, to connect and create yeah. communities of influence online. Yeah. To gravitate people together but for the social good, rather than just like our little bubble, filter yeah. bubbles. And we understood filter bubbles way before you know, uh, most people understood it. And we were like, yeah, that's why you got RSS, that's why we got you know, data sovereignty, so you could own your data rather than other people think. And it's, uh, it's been long forgotten. I sound really old talking now. It's an hour and a half, by the way. I told you. Wow. Yeah, no. Cool, right? But before we wrap up, have you got any questions? Because I've got a juicy question to finish off with. I haven't, no. No? No. Okay. I enjoyed it so far. So far. The <laughs> yeah. last question. Yeah. Just yeah. Gonna go. One question to go. <laughs> it's all going to come crumbling down. Sorry. No, well, we got a tagline with Creative Wally, which is Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. How are you going to be bold in the next year? What does 2023 20, boldness look like for Michelle, look like for Dave? For me, it's going back to being myself. Um, mm. 
last few years being in government and being, I kind of became who other people wanted to some degree. Right, okay. And so now, now I'm just going out there, I'm gonna make the speaking thing work by yeah. being authentic, Dave. Um, and being authentic, I think, will make me bold. I love that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I think doing more of the stuff that feeds my soul. I hate that, that sounds so cliche, but yeah, like I help out with um, some non-profits and, you know, maybe amping some of that up more. There's so much purpose for that. Okay. It kind of counterbalances the, you know, some of the stuff I... It's more work worky. It's it's more of that sort of how do I how do I help make a difference and make New Zealand slightly better? You know, sure. Helping out with some of the stuff. Yeah. With the nonprofits. Uh, the one I'm working with at the moment is Digital Seniors, which is absolutely amazing. So it's looking at bridging the digital divide with with seniors. You know, more and more that's a massive exclusion if you're not digitally savvy. There's so I mean even look at you know QR codes like. Yeah. yeah. What did. Thank yeah, you, COVID. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That brought it right up, yeah. Yeah, and with all of the changes that are coming to the world, you know, there's, there's so much technology is driving it, so how do we sort of help with that? Yeah. Good on you. Oh, it's not my uh, amazing lady named Kathy, Kathy Harding has, has put that together, so, yeah. That's mm. brilliant. And you? How are you going to be more bold? I think my boldness needs, needs to come from, like, an amalgam of both what you're talking about, which is my authentic self yeah. and stepping more into kind of uh, more pro-social endeavors and probably other people's endeavors rather than my own. So it's about, okay, I now know I have a set of skills. That sounds like a film, doesn't it? <laughs> a particular set of skills. I have a set of experiences and skill sets that I could bring, I think, uh, uniquely to an organization slash company. And I'm hungry to collaborate and I have been for the last, you know, good year and a half coming out of COVID. I'm like, I want to play, I want to play. Not a lot of people need a DK-shaped hole uh, to be filled. That sounds awful. DK-shaped <laughs> opportunity uh, for me. That can, there we go. And, and I'm really kind of being bold because I've done for the last 12, well, yeah, a while, shall we say, uh, been doing the solopreneur thing. And I'm kind of lonely. Like, I yeah. want to do shit now, but I like to collaborate. I think I play well with others, so I think I need to step into other people's arenas and be kind of a, a you know, a great support, number one go-to guy rather than the guy who does it, yeah. if that makes sense. So I'm, that's, that's what bold looks like for me. Nice. Yeah, thank you. This has been really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, enjoyed I, it? Yeah. yeah. And, God, time went quick. Dude, <laughs> like, it just, like, goes. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Thank you, and yeah. lovely to meet you. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you do well, even though it's the last minute ringing. Um, you thank know. you for stepping up, man. Hey, really no worries, appreciate you. But I, I didn't really know, come prepared, because how do you prepare for this? It is an odd one. It is. Like, how do you prepare to do something you've never done before? Yeah, like if I go on a podcast for preparedness, <laughs> I know what we're going to talk about. There we go. But um, no, but thank you. Thank you. That was Creative Welly, episode 45. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. Thanks again to David Hamilton over at Flash Dog Studio for hosting us and also John O'Tucker from Empire Films for producing this video podcast, unique video podcast. You're listening to the audio ver version via wherever you're listening to us from creativewelly.com. We hope you continue to have courageous conversations with polled humans and we'll see you next time.